Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, imagine holding not one, not five, not ten, but 13 Guinness World Records. Find out how a Calgary man and his Frisbee and sometimes a canine partner have made that happen. He's not done yet. And it all began as a way to cope with a tragedy. We hear his story tonight. Newly uncovered intelligence reports shed new light on a debate that's been going on in this country for nearly 65 years now. Why was the Avro Arrow project scrapped back in 1959? And it puts forth that above and beyond the ballooning costs, it was Canadian intelligence that put an end to that Made in Canada project. We get details from the researcher and former intelligence officer who unearthed the information. Global Mail Ottawa Bureau Chief Robert Fife is with us to look at the bombshell dropped by the Prime Minister in the House of Commons on Monday, pointing the finger at India in connection with the murder of a Sikh activist and separatist in BC in June. We look at the fallout. But first, thousands turned out in cities across the country today for protests and counter-protests focused on the way schools instruct sexuality and gender identity and how teachers refer to transgender youth. We hear from a protest organizer about what their aims were and an opponent about what their concerns are. Let's start right away with the thousands who gathered in cities right across the country today in protests and counter-protests focused on the way that schools in this country instruct sexuality and gender identity and how teachers refer to transgender youth. That was sounds from one of the protests today. It was called the Million March for Children. Uh, rally participants say they're standing together against what they call, quote, gender ideology in the nation's schools and saying parents have the right to know whether their children are questioning their gender identity. There were arrests, some reported in Ottawa, Halifax, Vancouver, and also Victoria today. Earlier Wednesday, Ottawa police said two people were arrested there for inciting hatred by displaying hateful material during a protest in the capital. But overall, it was tense, but peaceful. Uh, Caitlin Langelier was one of the counter-protesters who came out to support LGBTQ youth today. It's important to show up and show support for trans and LGBT youth, uh, especially with the surge in anti-LGBT and trans rhetoric that we're seeing in Canada and the United States. Part, of course, of what prompted today's events are moves by the provinces of New Brunswick and Saskatchewan to require young people to get parental consent before teachers can use their preferred first names and pronouns. Those opposed to parental consent rules say the policies are a violation of children's rights and that transgender youth should not be outed to their parents by teachers. Meantime, polling from Angus Reid shows that most Canadians don't see this as an either-or issue, that most parents aren't anti-LGBTQ but want more say over the content placed in front of their kids and want to know if their child is switching ID. It also shows the vast majority would work to accommodate if they learned that their child had an affinity for a gender other than what they were born with. Well, joining me now is Nadine Ness. She's the designated coordinator for protests held today in Saskatoon. Nadine, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me what today was about for you. Um, Today was actually a really positive, wonderful day. We had really great attendance. And we had something that I've never experienced or seen before. We had people from the Muslim community, Nigerian community, Sikh community come together and lock arms together for something that they feel really 
dear to their heart. Our province is a little bit different than some of the other ones because we were more celebrating the changes that have been implemented at the provincial level versus some were demanding changes. So we had a really positive response. We didn't see um, a whole ton of negative things from our side. However, the counter-protests themselves, they were a little bit more negative, swearing, yelling in front of our children and stuff. So right. it's um, that was a bit discouraging to see. But um, overall, it was really good attendance. I think we had around 1,500 to 2,000 people. And for a weekday, <laughs> um, that's really great for, for something like this. When you look across at the counter-protesters, I mean, again, in Saskatchewan, as you mentioned, the dynamic is different because the change has already been made. So the counter-protesters are, in fact, trying to fight to see something brought back to the way it was. So I can imagine passions are pretty inflamed. Uh, What do you see when you see the counter-protesters? Do you understand each other at all? Because I feel like a lot of Canadians sort of sit on either side of this issue. Yes. You know what? I think protests are, are like the worst case scenario for coming to the table. I completely agree with you. It's not necessarily a good environment to have productive conversation when it comes to the issues that parents are feel, facing and issues that LGBTQ community are facing. We did have some productive conversation towards the end when the tone kind of toned down and the march was done. We, we witnessed the Muslim community talking with some uh, in, in the trans community, as well as just the general LGBTQ community. But the, the fact of the matter is the reason parents are coming to the streets is they haven't been allowed to voice their opinion. Anytime anyone says anything that they have concerns, they're automatically labeled homophobic, bigot, all the names in the book, even if their concerns are legitimate concerns. And I think we're at a boiling point where parents are wondering, well, what can we do next? And there is strength in numbers. And I think that's why you're seeing this movement come across all over Canada is they want a seat at the table. And unfortunately, parents haven't had a seat at the table. And that's what this march is about, demanding a seat at that table so that we can come together and recognize the differences of all people and come to some sort of a happy median. If that I was interested. It, yeah, I mean, I was interested in reading your Twitter profile, your ex profile, as they call it now, married mother of four, former police officer, former atheist, mm-hmm. former lefty. So I think you know very well where a lot of the concerns come from. I mean, I think you can put yourself in the shoes of the counter protesters and think, okay, I get it. You know, they want, I think everyone has. The, it, I really do believe that most people, not everyone, there are certainly some people mm-hmm. on, on, you know, there are some voices out there which are talking about things which are, you know, um, beyond the pale to some extent. But are you, what sides. are you, wor- what, are, what are you right. worried? Yeah, what are you worried? About? I mean, what worries you when you look at what's happening in schools these day, days? Because often I think of, you know, education is, is about opening eyes and it's about understanding Canada as a tolerant culture based on the idea of human rights. Yeah, so so my I, I can recognize my particular side or, or my vision of what's happening in school is a bit biased because in the mm-hmm. province, I'm one of the biggest conservative voices that brings light and exposes what's ha- happening in school. So I hear from all the worst case scenarios all throughout the province. But I also remember what it's like to be on the other side. So mm-hmm. if, if I can find a way to kind of just bridge the two and come to like a more happy medium because some people don't even want any LGBTQ stuff in the school. And then I also know, um, have lesbian friends that they want their kids to be taught about other types of families because then their child comes home and asks why they don't have a dad and ask if they can have a dad. So I understand on both sides, 
there are concerns, but I do hear a lot more from one side just because of the position I'm in. And what I am hearing that's happening in school is quite concerning. So I, you, I can give examples if you want me to go into it just a little bit. I mean, bit. I, I, I've, read a little, I've read a little bit about, uh, about what you've written, just about the age of which kids are exposed to ideas about, about uh, different family setups and sexual orientation and so on. And maybe there's a debate to be had there. I guess, you know, of course, I grew up in the 70s. So by that mm-hmm. point, religion was being taken out of schools. Uh, we, mm-hmm. were entr- we were entrusting what our kids learned to experts, in other words, to, you know, educators who came up with curriculum that people agreed upon that, you know, reflected the values of the society that we're in. Uh, do you feel like it's moving too fast? Is that is that the issue here that some of these that because, you know, well, back when I was a kid, we yeah. didn't have really have proper sex ed, sex ed in class. And then that changed, thankfully. Um, you know, are, are well, you what, what are the concerns? Well, you, you said something interesting. You said we used to have school that matches the values of society. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, our school doesn't. reflect that anymore our schools are very much leftist ideology leaning so when when you live in a province like saskatchewan the majority of the province is conservative leading we have a Mm -hmm. lot of immigrant who who migrated away because of of religious prosecution and came to saskatchewan so we have a big population who have religious uh, beliefs so i think because of that they're seeing, we're seeing a clash where families who are more conservative are not seeing that reflected in the schools, and they're very concerned. So I don't think it's just um, with the gender ideology. I think it's with a lot of values that are being taught into our schools or into our children in school that don't necessarily match that of the family. And I think that's why I think it's so important for parents to be brought back into the at the table to have those discussions so that the other side or the school system and the teachers understand why it's so important for parents to, to, right. to get that kind of ideology out of the schools. I've never, I mean, I've never felt I've met any teachers who were, you know, I mean, I, I saw words like indoctrination and grooming, and I, I've never really felt that teachers played that role at all. In fact, if anything, teachers have always been sort of a shining light in a lot of lives, but sometimes opening up your eyes to things that you didn't know about, or maybe things you don't talk about at home, because maybe, again, your parents are from a different country, and they're in this country, and the value system and are, is a little bit different. Uh, but where is that line, do you think? Well, I, I think I think the line is starting to be crossed, and that's why parents are outraged and pulling their kids and homeschooling. Just for example, I'll just give you a small example. In a small town just outside of Saskatoon, the principal um, had an audio conversation that was shared with me with a mother where he said 32% of children grade 7 to grade 12 identify as LGBTQ. 32%. Now, another school here has 13 out of 30 kids in grade 8 identify as LGBTQ. We have to recognize that there's a phenomenon happening that we don't quite understand because that's not reflected in general society. So what is happening to our youth that so many are identifying as LGBTQ? And I'm not concerned in the sense that I don't want people to be LGBTQ. I'm more concerned if they say that there's an increased risk of suicide, increased risk of mental health issues, then why aren't we looking at this and, and studying what's this phenomenon? Is it hurting our kids? Is it helping our kids? And both both stories or both issues that were shared with me, there was teachers that were specifically 
pushing it in the classroom almost on a daily basis and celebrating mm. any children who came out. So I think, I think yes, some, some of the stuff that we're seeing is exaggerated, but I also think that there are legitimately um, accurate concerns as to what is happening with specific teachers. Now the well, other thing is, is Nadine, no I've got, I, I, I don't want to cut. I don't. I don't want to cut you well, off. But if we could have to, we'll, we'll have to leave it. We'll have to leave it at that. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I know yeah. this is a very uh, sense. This is a touchy topic, and I'm, I, I'm, I appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts sure. with us tonight. Okay, thank you so much. You have a good day. You too. Nadine Ness was designated coordinator for protests in Saskatchewan tonight. We're going to talk to someone on the other side of this debate after this. Don't go away. <laughs> That's the sound of a counter-protest today in Ottawa. Thousands of people gathered in cities right across the country focused on the way that schools instruct sexuality and gender identity, how teachers refer to transgender youth. We spoke to Nadine Ness, who set up the protest in Saskatchewan a little earlier. Now Christopher Wells joins us. He is the Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University. Chris, thank you so much. My pleasure. So tell me what you saw out there today, because uh, it was heated, it was heated, and it was, there were a lot of people out there today. This is an issue that clearly a lot of people, I mean, not, a, not millions, but a lot of people feel quite passionate about. Yeah, I saw um, a, a day across Canada where love won out over hate, where people showed up to uh, counter these uh, hate-filled protests that were happening uh, all over the country in uh, large numbers. Chris, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. You know, I grew up in Montreal in the 70s and, you know, grew up in a very liberal environment. Uh, do you think, when I looked out there, I mean, I saw I saw some hate, but I didn't see all hate. I also saw sort of parents who, who were expressing some concern. Maybe they, maybe it's out of fear. I don't know if it's always out of hate. Well, I think we have to look at uh, what's behind this so-called parental rights movement. It clearly mm-hmm. targets uh, specifically the 2SLGBTQ plus uh, community, students, curriculum, um, displays of pride, celebration of pride in schools, pride flags, rainbow crosswalks. It's not targeting any other community, so it's hard to call it anything else uh, other than uh, clearly hate-motivated behaviour. How concerned are you about the politicization of this? Because it feels like all of all the things going on in the world these days, and there are many problems out there, that sort of targeting this, targeting these kids, seems odd to me. Well, it's very concerning. You know, you're you're targeting one of the most vulnerable minorities that exist in our schools uh, today. And and quite frankly, you know, this obsession with focusing on trans and on non-binary young people in schools who represent less than 1% of the population. Um, and we know uh, how important safe and, and inclusive school environments are on a person's mental health and also, you know, their academic achievement, right? If, if you don't feel safe at school, you're, you're probably not going to stay there. And that impacts the whole rest of your life if you, you can't get an education. What do you tell? What do you say to parents out there who? I mean, there's been some polling recently. I mean, polls are polls, but some polling recently that shows that you know Canadians are a little bit split on this. They would like, they do think parents should have information when it comes to their children and what they're going through. Um, at the same time, they would, you know, they're not anti-LGBTQ. Uh, they would support a child who felt that they were, uh, you know, wished to be in a, a different gender than the one they were born with. I mean, there's a lot of support and a lot of concern all out there. I think people are just working their way through this at the at the same time. Sure. You know, I, I began my career as a classroom teacher. So, you know, I've, I've dealt with, uh, you know, parents for, for decades and, 
you know, um, I think if, if parents want to know what their, their children are feeling and experiencing, all they have to do is ask them, right? That, you know, if their, parent, if their children feel comfortable having those conversations with them, they will. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not always the case. And, and we know that young people need trusted adults in their lives. And if it's not a parent, right, well, we hope it's a faith leader. We hope it's a, a hockey coach or, um, you know, we hope it's a, a teacher or a school counselor that they can turn to and, and put their trust in, and, and confidence in. Not to throw a loaded question out at you, but what role do you think religion is playing in all this? Because we've known over the, a very long time that, that the, the teachings of many religions are counter to what many in the LGBTQ community have fought for in terms of equality for a very long This is not a new fight. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, some forms of religion have a big role to, to play in this. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when we look at who is actually, you know, at these protests. A lot of them are the same people and same groups that protested same-sex marriage. They protested against criminalizing a conversion therapy. Uh, you know, they were um, protesting against uh, abortion rights and were part of, uh, you know, this a trucker convoy movement. Um, so, you know, there's a constellation of values, you know, here for sure. But I think we also have to remember that public schools need to include everyone. So when we're talking about parental rights, we're talking about whose rights are we talking about? Um, you know, schools are not uh, there uh, based on one religion or, or one set of beliefs. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time on this tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, I know we only uh, really uh, scratched the surface. but Yes, uh, indeed. Yeah, you know, I, I suspect we'll be talking about this again, by the way. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think so, too. Uh, and let's keep the conversation going because you're, you're totally right. There's a lot of misinformation and a lot of fear out there. And, and we need to, to get the facts and, and the research uh, in people's hands. Well, this seems like a long time ago now, but it was nary more than 48 hours ago. The Prime Minister rising in the House of Commons on Monday to drop this diplomatic bombshell. Over the past number of weeks, Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar. Justin Trudeau telling MPs and the world that Canadian intelligence shows a link between India and the murder of a Canadian citizen. The BC Sikh leader, Hardeep Singh Nijar, a separatist as well, was shot and killed in June outside a Sikh temple in the Vancouver suburb of Surrey. The 45-year-old had been designated by India as a terrorist in July 2020. He was a Canadian citizen, though, and his murder happened on Canadian territory. Uh, Canada then expelled an intelligence service attaché working in this country. The fallout was quick and deep. India called the allegations absurd and unsubstantiated. And after a glimmer of unity on Monday, the opposition Conservative leader Pierre Polyev yesterday called on the PM to, quote, come clean about what he knows about the intelligence that led to this announcement. I think we need to see more facts. Um, the Prime Minister hasn't provided any facts. Uh, he, uh, he provided a statement, um, and I will just emphasize that he, he didn't tell me any more in private than he told Canadians in public, so we want to see more information. Well, today, India argued or urged its nationals not to visit this country and warned citizens considering travel to Canada of, quote, growing anti-India activities and polit politically condoned hate crimes and criminal violence. Uh, of course, Canada's Five Eyes intelligence partners, including the U.S. and the U.K., have been given a heads up, but have so far expressed concern, but haven't exactly, and asked India to cooperate, by the way, but haven't exactly jumped to Canada's side on this one. It is very tricky diplomatically. India is being courted, of course, by the U.S. and others as a counterweight to China. One of the people who's 
uh, done incredible work on the foreign interference file, including this story as the Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief, Robert Fife, and he joins me now. Uh, Bob, thanks so much. Welcome back. Hey, you're welcome. Well, what an announcement. I mean, you followed this file inside out, and I know, I, I believe you, you had your team had a story ready to go, and this might have sort of advanced this announcement. But what did you make of the way this was put out there on Monday? It felt like it was just dropped out of absolutely nowhere, and, you know, and the ripple effect of it has been hard to understate. Yeah, well, I mean, I was ready to uh, publish a story on Sunday, and the Prime Minister's office had asked us to hold for a week, uh, which we did not agree to do so because you can't sit on the story like that for a week, particularly since the government has been going around, including the prime minister, uh, telling uh, President Biden and the British prime minister and his national security advisor were telling other um, uh, members of the Five Eyes uh, community that, you know, they had uh, intelligence that India was behind this. But I said, if you needed more time, I'd give you 20, give them 24 hours. And we'd publish in the paper on Tuesday. So I think they just rushed the the, the announcement out on uh, in the uh, at three at three fifteen on Monday. Uh, we were able to get the. I got wind of that we're going to do it. We were able to publish it uh, just you know 20 minutes before. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it it did feel like it was rushed, but it was certainly a dramatic and stunning announcement that uh, a democratic government and a member of the, the, the British Commonwealth w- would have uh, had agents of the Indian government carry out a hit of a Canadian citizen, regardless of the fact whether he may be promoting separatism in in the in the northern Indian state of Punjab. He's a Canadian citizen. And as you know, uh, here in Canada, we have <laughs> separatists sitting in the House of Commons. So we do. Uh, it, 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 um, it was quite shocking. It was certainly, and it, of course, immediately went all around the world. I was surprised. I thought then if we published this story, Ben, that the government would come out and say, you know, we're not going to talk about national security issues, but we've been having con- conversations with the Indian government or words to that effect, I, I never thought we'd see the government come out and say we believe that agents in the government have killed a Canadian citizen. So I do think that um, Mr. Polyev is right, that the government should come forward and provide some uh, of the intelligence that led them to believe that India was behind this. There's certainly uh, precedence for this. Turkey did this when the, the Saudi journalist was killed by Saudi Arabia in mm-hmm. Turkey, um, they they provided clear evidence that they were behind this. And if this is the case with India, then I think the prime minister has an obligation to tell the country and the world. Yeah, I think a lot of people are waiting for a bit more detail. I understand this is always sensitive. Um, one of the things I thought watching him after he'd gotten up and said all this is all the work that you'd done with Stephen Chase, someone I used to work with, of course, back in the day in Ottawa as well, um, on the China interference file, that that played a big role in this, that somehow this was a government in a corner wanting to look like they were out in front of a very big story. Or maybe they thought it was politically expedient. I'm not sure. That's very cynical. But it felt like this was something that they were going to overreact after perhaps underreacting for so long on the China file. Well, I mean, look, the government, uh, this government has always been uh, ready uh, to criticize India at the drop of a hat. Um, Only a few years ago, the prime minister was criticizing uh, uh, the Modi government 
because of a protest by uh, mainly Sikh farmers, uh, which is kind of bizarre. I mean, why would we be speaking? Why would Prime Minister Trudeau be speaking in about farmers protesting in in India? Um, and you know, they've had we've had not very good relations with them for for a considerable period of time because the Indian government has believed that. Uh, we have been kind of soft on um, violent Sikh um, separatists and the funding of um, the Sikh, Sikh separatist funding that's coming from Canada. Um, you know, and my my only issue here is that it, it is convenient that the foreign affairs, uh, foreign interference inquiry is about to get underway. And of course, the government wants this to be part of the uh, inquiry, but you know, there this this China inquiry is really important, and I hope that Justice Gold will will keep her eye on the ball here because we need to know why um, intelligence from the CSIS outlining very significant attempts by China to interfere in the 2019 and 2020 elections were ignored, and more importantly, uh, was the Prime Minister aware of this and his senior advisors? And turned a blind eye because it benefited them, because these Chinese diplomats uh, were uh, and their proxies were were pushing, um, were trying to get liberal MPs elected at the expense of conservatives because they felt that liberals were less critical of China. You know, I had a conversation with Ujjal Dessange, who you will remember when he was in Ottawa as mm-hmm. well, uh, former premier of BC last night. I asked him point blank, like, how much of a, how much does diaspora politics here play a role in how the liberal government has approached some of these issues, including, you know, the question of, of Sikh separatism and India and India's concerns. And he was sort of unequivocal about, well, of course, this is about diaspora politics. I'd never heard anyone put it quite so bluntly, but he's there within the community. Um, is, is, is that, is that, I mean, has the Liberal government, and I, I don't want to be, you know, this is complex stuff, but has this government spent so much time sort of doing the, the math around diaspora politics that it's left itself open to being blind to some of these issues, at least the sensitivities around these issues as far as India is concerned? Well, there are 900,000 Sikhs in this country. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not home, and, and a significant number of Hindus, but not as many as there are Sikhs. And I think there that there is uh, about 15 writings that uh, in Brampt in the Toronto area and in British Columbia that uh, can... Um, have an impact could could potentially um, help lead to liberals getting elected. So diaspora politics is really important, as it is, it is in the South Asian community. It certainly is in the Chinese Canadian uh, community, and the liberals play that game very well. But this yeah. is this is. But you know, I don't want to distract away from the fact that a Canadian citizen has been killed, and if the Indian government is indeed uh, uh, behind us killing. Uh, this is a very, very serious issue, and, you know, uh, it can't uh, just be swept under the rug. No, and we saw a lot, awful lot of bluster from, from India right away on this topic about, uh, you, know, our, you know, Canada's inability to take this seriously, sort of painting uh, the victim as being somehow worthy of being attacked. Uh, there was a lot of deflection going on, I found, with the Indian reaction to this. I understand they were upset by the way it was dropped on them, uh, although they have According to everybody, uh, Prime Minister Modi had been told last week at the G20 a little earlier. What did you make of the Indian reaction? Because it seemed it seemed aggressive and vociferous. Well, I think they whatever intelligence has been shared with them, the Indian government must feel quite um, um, quite confident enough that they can 
uh, issue a denial uh, because uh, they, 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 this has been quite strong, a denial. I mean, if it had been any kind of, and I don't know what the evidence is, but uh, one would assume if it was ironclad, the Indian government would come out and say there are rogue elements who were responsible for this and they're going to face you know, justice. But in this particular case, they're saying they weren't involved in this at all. So, you know, we need to find out what the actual um, allegations are. You know, was it, was there some kind of communications between uh, an Indian official or an Indian intelligence official with, um, you know, uh, uh, these hitmen and this, because it was a gangland, gangland style shooting uh, or, you know, or, did, have, are these people still in the country? Were they usually? What happens is, you know, Ben, when if there are sanctioned hits by governments like Russia or or, or Israel, uh, they come in and and or Saudi Arabia, they come mm-hmm. in and uh, they do the hit and they get out of the country within uh, you know, like as soon as the, the the murder is over. So we don't know, for example, if the people who killed uh, Mr. Najjar. Uh, are from India and did they leave right away, or are they living in? Are they still in Canada? And because they wore masks and uh, maybe wore gloves and whatnot, that there was actually they don't really have strong evidence to be able to lay charges. Uh, Bob, I, I look at Canada now. We're on the outs with China. We're on the outs with India. That's you know half the world's population, more or less. It feels like our fights against foreign interference have put us in a, um, or at least our lack of perhaps. But whatever we've been doing, we're, we find ourselves in quite the situation. And our allies, I mean, they've been there to support us, but not exactly with uh, in loud voice. No, I mean the, our allies have said that they've uh, would like India to cooperate with Canadian authorities, but they haven't come out and publicly publicly condemned uh, New Delhi as uh, as Mr. Trudeau has, and there's a very good reason for this. Uh, India is the new counterweight to China. The world is very, very worried about the rise of China and its growing military and economic power, and it's, you know, it's, it's essentially a dictatorship now, and it's very aggressive. And uh, the, the, they see India uh, not only from a geopolitical point of view as a counterweight to um, China uh, because it has a very strong military and it's a very important player in, in the Pacific region. Uh, and the Americans have been uh, really reaching out to uh, the Modi government to work with them as a, as a way to um, thwart China's ambitions. But American companies and global companies and German companies and British companies that had put their investment dollars in and set up companies and factories in China are now getting out of there because they, uh, you know, China is is not only stealing any of their technology, but it's making it very, very difficult for them. They're putting Communist Party officials in in companies mm-hmm. uh, in in their companies. Um, it's just not a it's not a friendly place to be. There is no protection against. Uh, they have no. There's no rule of law, so they could lose their businesses or their executives could be put in jail, and uh, so they're looking to India um, as well for a number of reasons. It is a, a country with a parliamentary democracy. It has the rule of law, but significantly, it, it is has cheap labor like uh, China, it, but better than China. It uh, its population largely speaks English. And it also has a very um, robust and fast-growing uh, high-tech sector. 
So it is, a, it is a, and it's what, 1.4 billion people. It's actually surpassed China in terms mm-hmm. of population. So that's the place they want to go. And so nobody is going to go out and, you know, try to alienate or isolate India in because it's just too important a player now in the world. So, you know, Canada is going to be left on the sidelines on this one. I mean, people are not going to, well, we'll, we'll if there's any evidence that really shows it's true, you know, they're obviously going, they're going to, they're, they'll privately say, you know, India should, let's don't get into this racket where you're going around to, to Western countries and killing people, but they're not going to do anything serious with them. And look, look what happened when they, when, uh, the Americans and the whole world, including Canada, was outraged about the Saudi killing of the journalist. Uh, Jabal Khashoggi. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, that, that, that didn't last long. Yeah. That didn't yeah. last very long. As soon as no. the war in Ukraine went on and we re- everybody realized they needed uh, Saudi oil, everybody was beating the door down to, to uh, get the crown prince to sell them oil. So, yes, um, it's... Uh, we are we are uh, uh, um, not in a very good situation in the world right now. What are you looking for and on in this fact, one? If I may yeah, say sorry. Ben, Go ahead. We're, we're yep. even. You know, Australia has actually replaced Canada as the more important player in the Five Eyes intelligence community and as an American ally, because the, the Australians are spending money on their defense. They have been much. They've been. They were. They've led the way in going after China, and the Americans have and the, have joined together with the British, in an Arcus, uh, which is their, right. So the, uh, uh, it's it's a intelligence sharing agreement, but also the, the you know nuclear submarine agreement as well. But it's it's this is sort of becoming Five Eyes, which is involved in the United States, um, UK. Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, the five eyes is sort of now becoming a three eyes. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, Bob, what are you looking for now in the next few days? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of talk about this in Ottawa. I can only imagine what a beehive it is over this one. Uh, I guess we're looking for some more meat on the bone here from the government. Well, we yeah, the government's going to have to come clean with the intelligence and, and to show Canadians what, in fact, if they if they are saying this and and making this allegation, then surely you've got to be able to show some of the some of the the intelligence that would back up their claims without jeopardizing uh, the police investigation that's been going on for three months. But we also have to watch for does uh, does India uh, take even harsher measures against Canada? Uh, they very well may do so um, because you know they don't they don't need Canada. Um, no, and and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. So the prime minister may have overplayed his hand by being so strident about this that um, you know I just don't. I'm not sure that he handled this the best way he he, he could have. Well, uh, Robert, as always, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Wouldn't it have been much easier for me, on behalf of the government? To have continued the arrow, it was a beautiful aircraft, wonderful, didn't operate very far, but it was a, it was a fine example of workmanship. I had to make, in the finality, that decision, for over every prime minister's desk hangs, hangs that motto that was referred to one time by President Truman, 
the buck stops here. John Diefenbaker talking about his decision to cancel the Avro Arrow program 65 years ago in February, by the way, back in 1959. Ever since, there's been speculation about why it was done. Uh, this cutting-age made-in-Canada aircraft cancelled. But new research shows that it was, in fact, not just the costs that were ballooning, but it was a made-in-Canada decision based on strategic intelligence assessment that were made in Canada, uh, that the Cold Real World, the Cold War battlefield, rather, was changing, moving away from manned bombers towards ballistic missiles, meaning the arrow no longer made sense financially or militarily. The new research is laid out in an article by Alan Barnes called Arrows, Bears, and Secrets, the Role of Intelligence on Decisions on the CF-105 program, CF-105, the Avro Arrow. And it fills in a lot of the gaps that alleges so much speculation about the decision over the decades. Alan Barnes uh, was an intelligent assessment with the Intelligent Assessment Secretariat of the Privy Council Office. He, he is now a senior fellow for the center at the Center for Security Intelligence and Defense Studies at Carleton, and he joins me now. Alan, this is uh, this is a fascinating one. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I guess just to bring listeners back in time a little bit, because I think a lot of us have, have, if we weren't around back then, we've seen all that's been written since and the heritage moments and so on around this incredible project. Uh, but it, it, just a bit about the program itself, what its aims were, and how far along it was when it was when it was canceled. Yes, well, in the in the mid fifties, the uh, threat from Soviet bombers seemed to be uh, ever increasing. So Canada decided to uh, move into sort of the advanced aeronautical field and design its own uh, high performance interceptor, and that was planned to be the Avro Arrow. Um, so that was proceeding uh, through the mid fifties, but because it was a very complex technological uh, challenge at that time, the expenses kept building and building. And uh, as we all know now, in uh, early 1959, the Diefenbaker government made a decision to, to cancel the program. And ever since, there's been a great deal of controversy about why it was canceled, whether that was a wise decision and, and the implications. Amazing to think that it's nearly 65 years, right? It'll be 65 years in February since that decision was made. And yet here we are still talking about it. It was, I mean, my memories of it, just obviously I was born long after it was canceled. What a beautiful, what a beautiful aircraft. And also what a symbol of Canada at the time too. It felt like uh, it, it represented something about Canada emerging at the time and that its cancellation uh, felt like a bit of a stab at the, for, for a lot of people when it happened. Uh, that's exactly true. Uh also, I think the, the, the myth has grown somewhat uh, over time as well. So, so there's a little bit of rose-colored uh, glasses uh, involved here as well. But certainly it was a beautiful aircraft, and uh, it had a lot of, a lot of potential. Um, what people do forget is that there were many problems associated with it. And uh, obviously, as in so many things in real life, uh, it was much more complicated than it looks on the surface, and, and much more complicated than much of the rear-view mirror uh perspective on it now. Yeah, no doubt. Tell me a bit about some of the theories out there, because I've, I've seen many of them. Uh, a lot of them have to do with the Americans and sort of putting Canada back in its place. There's a lot of uh, a lot of different theories that have circulated over the years as to why uh, Diefenmaker made the decision that he did at the time. Okay, well, I want to make it clear that the, yeah. the, the, the documents are very, very clear that the, the main reason for the cancellation of the project was its escalating costs. Right. It was taking a huge proportion of the defense budget, uh, and and ultimately it was it was just unsustainable. Uh, so that's the main issue. But clearly, there were many other things going through the government's 
consideration when they came to that decision. And some of those other considerations uh, involved aspects of intelligence. And because none of this actual intelligence documentation has been available before now, there were many right. myths that, uh, you know, each each author brought their own perspective to the situation and sort of interpreted the very limited information in the way to sort of build their case. And so we ended up with, with interesting but incorrect um, myths about how uh, intelligence was, was manipulated. So right. some uh, authors... Uh, um, felt that it was the Americans manipulating the intelligence uh, to lead Canada to cancel the the arrow. Uh, others speculated that, well, maybe it was the Canadian intelligence authorities that uh, manipulated the intelligence so that they could support a decision that had already been made by the government. And others have said that, no, it was actually the Diefenbaker government that just ignored the intelligence and ignored the advice from uh, its its military advisors. And my research actually has shown that none of those myths are true. Yeah, we'll get to we'll get to the research because it's what you found is is very interesting and it fills in a lot of gaps that I think have been you know nature abhors a vacuum and I feel like you filled in a lot of those gaps with what you've worked on recently. Uh, what was why would the at the time what was the myth around why the Americans would want this project shelved? Well, I'd have to get into the minds of those who are making those claims. It's not certainly right. a claim that I would make, but I think the idea was the impression that the the arrow was sort of so far advanced beyond any other aircraft at the time uh, that the Americans didn't want that competing against uh, its own aircraft industry, and right. therefore was very happy that it that it was cancelled and, and and did all it could to make sure that it was cancelled. I, I just don't think there's really much basis for that that speculation. Yeah. That's one of those things that's growing in mythology, though, this idea that somehow Canada had had built this incredible aircraft and that the Americans weren't going to be overshadowed at this stage of the Cold War and therefore said, put it, you know, get rid of it. And, and it's one that's kind of I think if you stop people in the street and asked what happened to the Avararo, that, that can be a, the cost, obviously, but that can be one of the common ones you might hear come up. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the Americans were blamed for the cancellation. And I think quite wrongly, uh, people forget that, in fact, a number of um, American uh, aeronautical products, uh, interceptors similar in in uh, capabilities to the Arrow, were under development at that time as well. And uh, several of those were cancelled too. So it's, it's not just the Arrow that was cancelled. There's there's a lot of risks involved in developing these high tech uh, uh, aircraft and so on. And Canada had the additional challenges of of essentially doing this as a one off, whereas the Americans had a obviously a much more uh, robust uh, aeronautical uh, industry. Uh, so, Alan, looking through what you discovered, uh, it, it really did seem. I mean, the cost, the bur- the ballooning cost of the project was clearly one of the main, if not the main, consideration here when the the Avro Arrow was cancelled. But there was lots going on behind the scenes in terms of what Canadian intelligence was determining about the utility of of the aircraft that played a big role here, and that's kind of what you've unearthed for the first time. Uh, exactly. And, and I really was quite interested to see this material uh, come available because that wasn't really the story I was expecting to see. Um, what was interesting in, in going through the assessments is that uh, Canadian intelligence analysts worked very closely with their American counterparts. And in fact, much of the information uh, that Canada had on these kinds of subjects uh, came from the Americans. 
but Canada had established an independent capacity to produce its own assessments. So it was able to look at this information and come to its own conclusions. And again, what I found interesting was those conclusions were not the same as what uh, American intelligence was, was thinking at the time. What what were they? Because I, I what you've written or what you've found was that they began to realize that perhaps even though the Arrow was a was a pretty phenomenal aircraft, that it might not serve the purposes. Certainly not at the cost. It might not serve uh, the purposes that it was hoped for when it was originally conceived. That's right. The Canadian analysts at the time in the late fifties, uh, when the major uh, paper was written, the the key um, piece of analysis that really influenced the decision. Uh, Canadian intelligence analysts came to the conclusion that within a short period of time, in by 1960 or very shortly after that, the threat would shift from uh, the Soviet bombers to intercontinental ballistic missiles. And once that happened, uh, the the kind of interceptor aircraft, even very high performance aircraft like the Arrow, are really uh, not effective clearly against uh, ICBMs. And so spending that amount of money on uh, a weapon that, that isn't going to fulfill the, the full role it's necessary uh, was really hard to justify. So it's, it's interesting that when the Canadian intelligence came to that conclusion, U.S. intelligence was still stressing uh, the threat from Soviet bombers. This was the period of the bomber gap and so on. Yeah. And uh, U.S. Air Force intelligence really was keen on emphasizing the threat from uh, Soviet bombers because that played into U.S. Air Force uh, interests in terms of building up its its forces and so on. Whereas the Canadian analysts were sort of saying, what does the information say? You know, apart and aside from what's good for the Royal Canadian Air Force, what does the information actually say and what is the threat going to be like in five or seven years when the Avro Arrow was supposed to become operational. And their conclusion was that the bomber threat, the Soviet bomber threat, was going to diminish in that period because the Soviets were going to shift their focus to ballistic missiles and ultimately uh, interceptor aircraft like the Arrow uh, weren't as effective. They weren't effective at all against ballistic missiles. And and as it turns out, uh, I suspect they were right. Uh, they were absolutely right. Uh, as a professional intelligence analyst reading over their assessment, I was very impressed by the, the quality of the judgments they made. Uh, they were making judgments about how the threat might evolve over the next decade. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And I was quite impressed where they were able to essentially predict the rise and then decline of Soviet bomber numbers and the uh, consequent increase in Soviet ballistic missiles. Now, they were off a little bit on their predictions of, of when the, the ballistic missiles would, would come out in force, but they were really very close to their assessment on the evolution of the and, and diminution of the Soviet bomber threat over the next decade. How did that differ from what you expected to find when you went in looking for these documents? Well, I must say I, I expected the Canadian analysis to pretty well line up with the American analysis. Uh, the uh, the Canadians and Americans worked closely together to produce joint assessments on the threat to North America. And because Canada is a smaller player and because a lot of the information comes from the Americans, I did expect the Canadian analysis to line up pretty closely with, with the U.S. So I was quite interested to see, again, from a professional 
intelligence analyst point of view that the Canadian analysts were ready to take uh, an independent view of this and come to different conclusions. And their conclusions... Yeah. So 65 years later now, with the benefit of hindsight and with so many stories and the legend of the arrow having grown so exponentially since then, I guess ultimately, if you look at what you've discovered, uh, it was the right call. Sadly, perhaps, but it was the right call. Yes, I I think so. I mean, that wasn't the purpose of of the paper. The paper was to try and look at what kind of influence there, uh, how intelligence influenced the decision. But I think the final conclusion is that the Diefenbaker government comes out looking much better uh, than it has has had over the last number of years. Uh, at, at the time of the announcement, in fact, uh, in Parliament, Diefenbaker said that, that the reason it was cancelled was because of the changing threat. It all sounds so familiar, doesn't it, Alan? <laughs> the more things change. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to be talking with you. This is also one of those stories that I was really captivated by. One of the toughest and most heart-wrenching assignments I had during my years as a foreign correspondent was the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. There were some 300 survivors there from around the world, including from Canada. Uh, They gathered that day in January 2015 to remember the more than 1 million who died at that uh, Nazi concentration camp in Poland. Uh, Given the passage of time, most of them were kids or teens when they'd arrived there, part of entire families torn from their homes right across Europe and sentenced to death. The Soviet Red Army liberated that death camp and were welcomed as heroes back then. But the history is a complex one. That dark era in world history and the plight of two Jewish families living under Hitler, one under Hitler and one under Stalin, is the basis of a new memoir by prominent British politician and author Daniel Lord Finkelstein. His father and his family's story unfolds, his father and his family's story unfolds in what is now the Ukrainian city of Lviv, a place we've talked about a lot on the show since Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Well, his mother and her family's story begins in Berlin before they moved to Amsterdam to flee uh, the rise of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler in that country. As Finkelstein puts it, the infamous Hitler-Stalin non-aggression pact would change his parents' lives forever. It's a story of how they lived, how those lives were ripped apart in a wave of anti-Semitism and anti-elitism that swept the continent, how they survived, and how their two roads home led them to a life in suburban London where he was brought up. It is the focus of Finkelstein's book called Two Roads Home, Hitler, Stalin, and the Miraculous Survival of My Family. And while it is a memoir steeped in the past, it is also about realities that feel very much of the present. And uh, Daniel Finkelstein, Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein, joins me now from London. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. This is a a remarkable story. Uh, Tell me a bit about the decision to tell it now, because in reading it, so much of it feels like history. And yet so much of it feels like it could be if you just change the names and even not even that many of the place names, you could be telling the same story today to some extent. Well, there are two reasons. One is practical, to be honest. I have a busy professional life and I've always known I had to tell this story. I've known that it was right because of my parents and right because the world needs to know what happened. Uh, But the other reason was uh, so there, there was COVID and it became practical to do it because I didn't have so many meetings. The the other reason was political. Uh, I think that some of the themes in the book, um, both my parents being uh, imprisoned because they were part of a kind of elite, uh, as it were, as seen by the Nazis, they thought all the Jews were an elite, some of whom happened to be shopkeepers, and the Soviets 
who thought all the shopkeepers were the elite, some of whom happened to be Jews. Uh, they, My parents were both 10 and they were included in this elite. That sort of thinking, uh, a kind of populist thinking, I suppose, about uh, the way that the will of the people is being frustrated by a secretive group. You can see it around you. I think it's very dangerous thinking. And I felt this history would help people who re- read it understand the consequences of that thinking. One part of it, and I think the title at least says it all, is the idea of the two roads, because your mother and father, even though they were the same age, growing up at just about the same, you know, they're a few years apart, but growing up in, in quite different circumstances. Your mom winds up in Amsterdam, uh, and we can talk about that in a bit. But your father ends up in a place or is in a place that I think people now know well because of the war in Ukraine in what we now know as Lviv. And he's living a very different, his family lives through a very different experience and one that we don't often talk about when it comes to that era. Absolutely. My father's is a history that has been half hidden. It was Stalin's idea that he would destroy the elite of Poland. He would chop its head off, basically, by arresting everybody, whether you were a school teacher or a shopkeeper, as I said, or a, a leading civic figure or a businessman or even a philatelist or someone who spoke Esperanto because you might have international <laughs> contacts. Certainly everybody who was a socialist uh, who held a different view to Stalin and everyone who was a capitalist uh, because they also held a different view to Stalin. And my my grandfather was one of those people. He was a very wealthy iron and steel merchant. He was known as the Iron King of Lvov, as it was known at the time, as Lviv was known then. Uh, and part, he was suspected by the Soviets of strengthening the might of capitalist Poland, which indeed he was doing. So when he was arrested and sent to the Gulag, my father uh, and my grandmother were deported. They did this to hundreds of thousands of people. Very few people know this to the edge of Siberia in northern Kazakhstan. So uh, my father, from having been brought up the only son of this very wealthy man in this beautiful house uh, with solid confidence, hundreds of years of Finkelsteins in that city, suddenly finds himself after three weeks in a rail, in a cattle truck uh, in this freezing cold farm where they are virtually starved to death. There's so much in the book to talk about, but one of the things that struck me is that right up until the end, so the year before, your grandfather builds this beautiful modern house in Lviv, and it's sort of a symbol of the idea that they believe that that there's a place for them here. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people struggle with now uh, in the with the rise of populism is what is your place? And the idea that you 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 think your place is there until you realize quite suddenly and uh, that it's not, and and that the the to and fro, and it happens on your mom's side of the family as well, to a lesser extent, uh, because your mom's father is chronicles a lot of uh, anti-Semitic acts and, and the rise of Nazism in Berlin in the early 20s and so on. But this idea that you belong and all of a sudden having to deal with the fact that you're going to be persecuted and targeted. Yeah, that, then it really questions it. And if you look at the property they built, in 1938, he gets planning permission, my grandfather Dolu, for this beautiful art deco house. It's different to all the houses in the area. He lives in the street with professors and art dealers and teachers and a former prime minister, four times prime minister, uh, Bartel of Poland. And, you know, he thinks that the future is solid. You can see it in the architecture. And yet they lived in this place for a year uh, before the Soviets arose, confiscated the business, convert, uh, made, uh, got rid of him uh, from that business and he, and end up arresting him. So, 
Yes, uh, it shows that even the most solid of lives uh, in the most stable and placid of circumstances can be upturned by these uh, huge waves of national feeling, or in this particular case, of, of foreign invasion. Meanwhile, your mum's family is in Berlin at first, and your grandfather is perhaps one of the most, the earliest to start to sound the alarm about what's happening in the very shadows of the First World War. Uh, he even, there's an incredible chapter at one point where he sits down uh, with Hermann Goring, of, of all people, as soon after the Nazis, I gather, come to power. And, and his journey is a very different one, and yet, uh, ultimately, the same sorts of attachments exist and the same sorts of incredulity to what's about to happen uh, exists as well. And so you sort of see two different families from two very different positions struggling with the same awful truth. In 1933, my grandfather, Alfred, had a nervous breakdown uh, because of the dissonance between his belief that being German and being Jewish went together and the reality of what happened to him. He had, since 1919, he'd seen the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany, and he'd warned in a tract that he published, you know, really literally before anyone else, that uh, that if we didn't do something in Germany, then we would be talking to our ancestors of bestial murder, and people didn't do anything, and we are talking, uh, you know, his ancestors are talking about bestial murder. So he... Uh, began to campaign in the 1920s against the Nazis. He collected every document that he could lay his hands on. In the, in the 19, later after the war, he's the only person that had a picture of Joseph Mengele, the the, the uh, doctor at Auschwitz, when everyone was trying to find him in Argentina. Uh, he collected every leaflet. Uh, knew what their uniforms were like. Other people weren't doing this. And he also tried suing them as well. He put Julius Stryker, who later uh, was prosecuted at Nuremberg and and hanged, he put him in jail um, using material that he'd collected. And the meeting with Goering was that when the Nazis came to power, uh, Goering took him to one side and said, I know you have this archive and you have to destroy it. And my grandfather eventually did destroy it went to Amsterdam and began again. Uh, and I always thought my mother was Dutch, a bit like everyone describes Anne Frank as a mm-hmm. little Dutch girl. But actually my mother, who knew Anne Frank, they had the similar experience. That both of them were actually Germans living in as refugees in Holland. So my whole view of how I, who brought me up, I suppose, was altered a bit by the research I did on this. Yeah, and and also, and you mentioned this because I think whether whether or not you you have family that fought in the Second World War with the Allies, liberating places like Belzen. Uh, in my case, I have an uncle not related to my family, but an uncle by marriage, great uncle by marriage, who did. They didn't talk about it much, did they? You have a great line where your mum didn't talk about the war up until maybe the late seventies when she started to speak about it a bit, uh, and and how a lot of this history went sort of unshared for for several decades for for obvious reasons. My mother wasn't silent in the way that some people are. They really refuse to talk about it. Uh, if I asked her about it, she certainly would talk about it. But friends of hers have told me, and I've had more tell me since they've seen this book in its first stages, that um, suddenly this information came out that after they'd known her for 20, 30, 40 years in, in some cases. Uh, and I know this is amazing, but my mother was such a person that she didn't want to be a bore. She even asked me at one point, do you think people will be interested in the fact that I saw Anne Frank in Belson? I said, well, I think they will be, mum. So the, uh, you know, the, these extraordinary sure. stories, um, you had to, you had to, 
kind of get her to tell them. Uh, but they really, it really was quite extraordinary, including one central part of her story, which which isn't at all well known, which is that she became a citizen of Paraguay. Uh, oh. There was a, um, she, there was a, and and this is how she managed to survive the Holocaust. A group of Polish diplomats based in Switzerland. Um, discovered that they could buy Paraguayan passports from an honorary consul, a Swiss notary who lived in Switzerland, uh, but was a Paraguayan consul. And he stamped these documents, and this gave them hostage value to the Germans. And that's why they were put in Belsen when other people were sent to Auschwitz or Sobibor, when other people were sent to the gas chambers. And that document is the reason why my mother survived the war, because she was part of a very rare prisoner exchange. Daniel, because of your mother's connection to Anne Frank, and I think that there is this interesting part about it where you where she discusses Anne Frank and how her her childhood in Amsterdam was not unlike that of Margot and Anne, the sisters, and they I don't think they lived far away from each other, if I remember. Uh, and she mentions a Justin Bieber line because he took a lot of flack for this in Canada when he went to Anne Frank House and sort of said, "I think Anne Frank would have been a believer when she was young." And yet, your mum, in her way, agreed with that. She said the reason why Anne Frank was so impactful is because she was like every other young girl, young Jewish girl growing up in Amsterdam at the time. Yeah, this is, uh, this is, I think, why my mum's perspective and her sister's on Anne and Margot is so valuable. They didn't see them as a famous person. Indeed, when somebody in a, an article, uh, which I mentioned, my mother seeing Anne Frank in Belson said to me, how would she have recognised her because she wasn't famous at the time? I said, well, they knew each other. They were part of the same synagogue. So Otto Frank helped establish the, the liberal synagogue in Amsterdam. Uh, and... Um, my my family were part of the same synagogue. So in particular, Margot and Ruth, my mother's elder sister and Anne's elder sister, they were in class together. And if you go into the Anne Frank house, you can see both of their names in a, in a sort of school list uh, just before you go into the secret annex. They, ha- they had, in many ways, similar stories. But at a crucial moment um, when, um, I suppose, when in that last month when Anne and Margot both die um, of disease. That is the moment at which my mother is saved by this Paraguayan passport and leaves. But lots of people who didn't leave die of disease. But yes, my mother's perspective on, on, on Justin Bieber's comment was, well, that's actually right. He's really captured something. And I was a bit surprised by that. But it, it did, she typified rather her generosity of spirit as well as you know her insight. The truth is Anne Frank, you know, wasn't famous when she wrote the diaries. This is critical. Yes, and 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 yet the connection, though, I, I suppose it's the idea that she told the story of of what is. And your mum very much. It, there's so much about your book too that reflects just how, for the kids at least, because your parents were both very young at the time, or young, they were in their you know in ten, twelve, early teens, just how normal life had been, and all of a sudden how everything changed so catastrophically, and it sort of that's what leads them to this life that that you knew growing up in in, in the suburbs of London, quite a stable and and a normal life, I would say. Yeah, my, one of the stories in in the paper, my aunt uh, recalls going for Passover, a Jewish festival. Um, what, what my grandfather was already setting up a library in London. He wasn't with them. They were trapped in. The Nazis had taken over. And just before their host went into hiding, actually, this woman held a a, a dinner uh, and a Passover dinner, and my 
sister, my mother and her sisters had to eat beetroot, which they hated. Right. Right? But, but my grandmother, Greta, uh, who's one of the heroes of this book, so brave. Um, she sees the girls through all of what gives them their la- her last bit of food. Amazing person. She tells them, you have to eat the beetroot. You know, it's polite. And my my aunt remembers this fact, this banal, ridiculous fact uh, after everything she then has to say about Westerbork and Belson and the fact that my great aunt and her first cousin and my great uncle go to the gas chambers mm. and the way that everyone in the book nearly starves to death. Mm. She still remembers the beetroot because life was full of these banal details. I always found it when I was researching it, if I could find one of those that summed up life, you know, for example, I, uh, Ruth had written down how much uh, time it had taken her to swim a particular kind of breaststroke uh, in a swimming gala. I found those details very important because they show what was lost, you know, this ordinary life where the, the kids on the street played together and they had um, a club where they where someone wins some marbles for answering a quiz question. And these kids went to the gas chambers or they were imprisoned um, or and they were killed. And you can understand the size of the crime by getting these individual stories. So what I hope this book does, both on my father and my mother's side, is it is it tells the history of this of these events. Well, uh, Daniel Fickelstein, it's a it's a fascinating book about many many things, and uh, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. I couldn't do that. That's, yeah, that's saying something. That's the crowd going wild at an Edmonton Riverhawks baseball game a little earlier this year. They weren't cheering for the home team, but for a dynamic duo, Rob McLeod and Sailor the Touchdown Dog, uh, a Border Collie Whippet, sorry, a Border Collie Whippet Cross, who's come down with a Frisbee that Rob launched about 350 feet from home plate to the depths of center field. This was no by no means their first rodeo, so to speak. Here they are at the Calgary Stampeders, at a Calgary Stampeders home game at McMahon Stadium back in 2021 when Sailor came down uh, with the Hail Mary to end all Hail Marys, running the length of the field uh, to break the record for the longest catch at a live sporting event when uh, it was a 109-yard throw. Here, have a listen. As soon as he leaves his hand, you go crazy, Calgary. Yeah, I mean, to watch it, too, because, yeah, Sailor's wearing like a little Calgary Stampeders thing, and it's it's all awesome. Um, Rob McLeod has set, I think it's 13, it might be 12, but I think it's 13 Guinness World Records related to throwing flying discs, including one with Sailor. Frisbee Rob, as he's now known, you might have heard that over the uh, PA system at McMahon Stadium in that clip, uh, has started started all this more than a decade ago for very personal reasons, very personal reasons. And it has grown into something far bigger than I imagined he could have imagined, including that Baker's dozen of Guinness World Records. And he plans to add to that incredible tally. Rob McLeod, Frisbee Rob, Guinness World Record holder and now motivational speaker as well, joins me. Rob, thanks so much. 
Thanks for having me. It's uh, amazing to listen to those and just remember being there in the moment. Wow, it, watching them, even watching them is amazing. That one in Calgary, I mean, they're both great. I, I guess the one in Edmonton's a little more muffled, but the crowd just goes bananas. It's so cool. Yeah, and the Calgary one, it was at night, so you can see the Frisbee. The announcer was just spot on. Everything just lined up perfectly. It was just an unbelievable moment. And that sailor, too. That's that's a long run. I mean, that's a, and it didn't break a sweat. Like, just did it as if it was, eh, no problem. Well, it's interesting because that was actually our seventh throw, and he <laughs> okay, was so he was panting hard. I was tired, and the announcer said, "Let's go one more time," and that was our best one. So I put everything I had into it. Taylor had to actually slow down to catch the frisbee. I still can't out throw him. He's that fast. Wow! Yeah! Wow! What speed Sailor uh, has. Uh, this is a, this is a, well, I guess we could start back with the Guinness world record thing, because I think I was thinking, I was reading an interview that you'd done. And I think all of us um, used to, when you're young, you get that first sort of ear dog-eared copy of, of the Guinness world book of records. And it's so fascinating. I remember I was, I was really into some of the same things that you were into, like the longest mustache, the tallest man, the biggest man. Like I, I would stare at these things and think, Oh my God, how do you get into this thing? Cause I'm never going to be that tall. Uh, I understand that you had that same kind of inspiration as a kid. I did. Robert Wadlow, 8 feet 11 inches tall, just blew my mind. And I just was like, it'd be cool to be in the book. But, you know, at the time I was really big in a track and field and and always would look up the track records and was just amazed by those as well. And I remember the Atlanta Olympics when Donovan Bailey broke the world record and just amazing, just people pushing the limits and just really trying to do their best. And and yet, in, in your way, you kind of found your way into this for, for a lot of personal reasons uh, I was looking at. And, and back when you were in, in university, because you grew up in New Brunswick, you live in Calgary now, you went to school, I gather, in Nova Scotia. And you sort of started Frisbee stuff because of a difficult time you were going through. Yeah, so I went to the U of A first year, actually, in Edmonton. And mm-hmm. that's where I was born. Had a lot of personal memories in Edmonton. Just mm-hmm. my parents would tell me what it was like. And started actually teaching myself how to throw a frisbee and then two weeks after I got home from my first year my mom passed away and so mm-hmm. frisbee really became my way to grieve and she was a huge supporter of all my sports huge volunteer and everything and frisbee was the one sport she never got to see me play so I think a lot of it in the beginning was fueled by me wanting her to be proud and it's become so much more than that over the years. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That that, that would have been. I'm, I'm glad you found a way to 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 do something that allowed you to kind of get through that period too. How did it start with the world records, though? Because I think all of us have, you know, I I used to play frisbee golf at camp, and I wasn't particularly good. I was okay, but how did you sort of go from, okay, this is a pastime to I'm going to be really, really quite great at this? Sure. Yeah. After about ten years of playing ultimate and just throwing a frisbee and loving throwing, I ended up getting into dog disc. And Davey Whippet was the first dog I ever really competed with. Mm-hmm. We competed in a distance event. My first throw to him, he caught. It ended up being a world record in that organization. And it wasn't oh, a Guinness wow. world record, but it really opened my eyes. And then I was invited to be on a TV show in China. Started looking up other world records. Met multiple Guinness world record title holders. Met a guy from Australia that has like 26 world records at the time. And it just really opened my eyes to what you could do. And um, it's just been something I've been pursuing ever since. Yeah. On your first throw, your first throw with that, with that, with that dog, you you talk about very fondly about, about, uh, about, about that dog whose name I'm just, it, it was uh, Davey. Davey. That's right. yeah. 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 You talk with a lot of fondness about Davey and some of those early world records that you actually ended up at least a few with him. 
yeah, I grew up with dogs and it just never really clicked that you could throw frisbees to dogs. It's always kind of the, an insult for ultimate frizzy players when people ask them if they should throw to their dogs. And <laughs> after doing it for over a decade, it's super, super fun. And I'm seeing more people get into it. But Davey yeah. was just an unbelievable athlete. First dog to catch over 400 feet. Uh, just really showed me what it was like having a teammate that was really motivated. You know, competing with humans, everybody has different motivations. and But Davey would just show up every single time. Just wanted to work for me. 400 feet. That's a long way. That's a long way to throw a Frisbee, let alone run and catch it. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, when we actually broke that record, we missed, or he missed the first 61 throws basically. <laughs> Speaking so of panting, if Sailor missed seven yeah. and, and Davey missed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So five days of record attempts and we broke the record on the fifth day on the second throw. And oh, it's wow. just a day I'll never forget a moment. I'll never forget. And just and you've had sure a lot of my favorite record. That's your favorite record. That was that was that was one of the first ones too, right? I mean, because there've been others. There've been on skates and rollerblades. It's quite the list. Tell me a bit about it. Yeah, it's something that um, I've been able to meet quite a few of the record holders that previously held the records. I've been able to interview them. A few of them have passed away, unfortunately, but I was able to talk to them and meet them before they passed away. And it's just something that you know they set the record, and then a, two decades later, three decades later, someone else is trying to go after the record. So there's all this discussion you know, in basketball or hockey about who's the GOAT. And the yeah. cool thing about Frisbee is you can't compete with someone from 40 years ago, but you can go after their records. And a lot of the Frisbees are still the same technology as 20, 30 years ago. So in a way, you are competing with them when they were your age. And I have friends in their 70s who are still going after world records. So it's been just an incredible sport and family to be a part of. Yeah. Tell me about the one on skates, because I was trying to figure out how that would work. It's very Canadian. Um, So I grew up figure skating and playing hockey. And then when I learned to throw Frisbees, you throw, you skate, and you have to try and catch your own throw. And so Ah. we measure the total time in the air, the total distance from where you throw to where you catch it. Right. So the rollerblade one would be similar then? It is. It's a little little more difficult because you don't want to dive. Yes. uh, (laughs) It's a little more technical. At least on purpose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're working on some others too. You're not done yet. Is it, I, I, is it 13 or 12? I apologize. Cause I read 13. Then I saw 12. I think it's 13. So I've set 13. Someone did yeah. actually break one of my records. So I'm the current record holder of 12. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and yeah. you're not done. Yeah. You're not done. You have more in sight. Yeah. So when I go into schools, I do a trick shot. I throw a Frisbee in a basketball net and I've been doing that in over 500 schools, over 15,000 attempts. So that's going to be my next record attempt is the longest throw into a basketball net with a Frisbee. One of the things I noticed watching uh, the Edmonton one in particular, because there were a lot of kids at that game, is, uh, and you've, you've actually begun going to schools and talking to kids and so on. How did that come about? Because it's a really interesting uh, development in what you've been doing and just how they interact and what it sort of says to them and how they, they're really into it, which is great. Yeah, it was neat. I was invited about 11 years ago, 10 years ago to speak um, to a bunch of kids about my Guinness World Records at the time, and they met Davey, and then I was invited to a school to talk about them, and then I ran a workshop, and probably three, four years after that, it took me a while to, to really get a rhythm, but started doing it full-time, and uh, everything just kind of clicked into place, so it's just super fun showing them what you can do with the Frisbee. Part of that, too, is I played Frisbee for 10 years and didn't know what I didn't know, so if I can accelerate some of that learning for people and just show them what is possible to Frisbee and then kind of let them decide what they want to do. I at least want to give them that knowledge.
Yeah. We use the kind of the, the generic term Frisbee. When I think of Frisbee, you know, I just think of that, you know, plastic disc. But there are a lot of different kinds that you use because I understand it even in that clip with Sailor that, it, that that's in fact a dog-friendly disc, so to speak. It is, and that's, that's one of the biggest bonuses that's come from that. So that video has been viewed over 500 million times across <laughs> many, many channels. Yes. And a, a big question always comes up of what disc are you using? And so we get a chance to educate people. If you're going to throw to your dogs, use a dog-safe disc. Don't use an ultimate disc. Don't use a, a golf disc. But there are many different kinds, weights, sizes, colors, <laughs> different types of plastics. It can be a bit overwhelming sometimes, for sure. Yeah. And tell me about Sailor, because I gather there's – are Daly and Sa- um, Davy and Sailor are from the same breeder, is that right? Um, the, the, so the same owner. Same owner. Um, yeah, they are – they're not related, but mm-hmm. breed-wise, Sailor has Whippet in them as well. But the Border Collie makes him a little bit more driven, a little bit more cuddly. And uh, <laughs> he's staring at me right now, just watching. Oh, he's very used to these interviews, but – <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to leave him out of this, by the way, because I mean, he's the other star of the show. I don't know what he would want to want to talk about, but he probably just wants to go out and throw, right? Just go and play some catch. Oh, it's unbelievable. As soon as that frisbee comes out, he wants to go. And as soon as we get inside, he just sleeps. And I can almost make a book of all the different positions he sleeps in because it's pretty, <laughs> pretty interesting how he can contort his body and just it doesn't look comfortable, but whippets are a yeah. very interesting breed. Yeah, well, no kidding. And, and I mean, clearly he's he's gotten used to the crowds and all that because watching that Calgary uh, Stampeders game, the McMahon Stadium one, that's a lot of noise for 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 an animal to have to try and do his gig with all that. Is there's that it was it was annoying for you too, by the way. But that was uh, that was some serious noise going on in that stadium. It's it's interesting you mention that we've actually done two NFL games, and one of the NFL games, a huge air horn went off and spooked him, so he. He just wasn't able to perform, and so oh. seventy thousand people, and he just wouldn't chase the frisbee, and that was that was heartbreaking for us. Just hoping that he was okay, and, yeah. and that's the thing you can you try to control the situation as much as possible. But some dogs are okay with that. Some dogs you just never know until it happens. And live entertainment is an interesting, <laughs> interesting it certainly to is. Get into. So yeah, it certainly is. What's up, what's up next on your on your on your travels with uh, with Sailor? Um, we're going to be attempting to break one of Davy's records, actually, in a couple of weeks. And uh, not the longest throw. I'll probably never attempt that one again. But we're going to attempt the longest time having a Frisbee in the air before being caught. So, Sailor, I've, tr- I've practiced a little bit. You throw it really, yeah. really high, and then he has to track it. The throw has to be perfect, but he's already picking it up. So I, th- I think that'll be a record that we can take down. And do you just do that? I mean, is that something you just do in the park? Or you obviously have to have people watching this, right? People have to, or you have to video it. There has to be, I'm trying to remember, because we interviewed someone who did, I'm trying to remember there's another Guinness World Record, and it, you, there's a whole process. There is, and uh, I get asked that by a lot of people, you know, what the process is like. And you can pay a lot of money and have somebody from Guinness actually come and be there. And it's all their expenses, and then they have this certificate, and they award you the record right away. Or typically I'll just get all the documentation, send in all the record, all the video, and then takes a few months usually. But um, these records are specific enough and specialized enough that I'm not worried about someone breaking it. So some of these records that are constantly being broken, by the time that you <laughs> break it and get approved, someone else has probably broken it. So that's always the concern as well with some of these records. Well, Rob, I wish you and Sailor the best of luck with the next record. Uh, give him, give Sailor our best uh, sitting there watching you talk. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your story. It's hey, What a great story. Thanks so much.
Thanks for having me on.